Phil is speaking to us this morning, and uh, I invite Phil to come, and as he does, I'll read us uh, the passage for this morning. So we're following on from where we were last week. We're on page 1054, if you're in a red Bible, one of the church Bibles. It's Luke 19, and we're starting at verse 28, and we're reading down to verse 44. Let's read together. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said if you even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace but now it is hidden from your eyes the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side they will dash you to the ground you and the children within your walls they will not leave one stone on another because You did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Speak to us, we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Andy. If you could have your your Bibles open at that passage, we're going to look at it now. Throughout history, great leaders have sought to arrive on the world stage with as much impact as possible. Uh, so most, most notably, you have uh, Napoleon. He was famous because he always rode a white horse, a white stallion, a, a, a symbol of power. Margaret Thatcher, in her re-election campaign in 1987, uh, chose a challenger tank um, to arrive on the scene and declare her hand. George W. Bush, at the end of um, of, the, of the first Iraq or the second Iraq war, um, he, he flew a warplane onto um, an aircraft carrier. 
They're big statements. They're almost overstatements, all trying to make the point that these are strong people and powerful world leaders. So what about Jesus? What did Jesus do when he was finally ready to announce himself to the world? What did he do when all eyes were on him? Well, in our passage this morning, Jesus doesn't choose a white horse on which to announce his kingship. This is not pomp and ceremony. It's not a challenger tank. It's not a warplane. Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem. And we're forced to do a double take. Why? Because of the contrast between what's happened here in this passage and what Jesus has just told his disciples about his coming kingdom. Look at verse 26 with me in your, in your Bibles. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. You see, Jesus is saying in the verses previous to this passage that when his kingdom comes, he will judge the world and destroy his enemies. And right throughout his ministry, he demonstrated he had the power and authority and the right as God's king to do that. But the striking thing in this passage is that Jesus doesn't come in judgment. There's almost, a, there's almost a, 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 a cliffhanger at the end of last week. What is he actually going to do? Because he's about to come into Jerusalem. Is this the time when he will judge the nations? When the Romans will be destroyed? When Jerusalem will once more be God's great center of his kingdom? Is that, what gonna, is that, is, is, is that going to happen now? No. Jesus doesn't come in judgment. He comes in peace and humility, riding on a donkey. And the point he's making in doing that is that he has come as king with such power, such total authority, that he doesn't need a grand entrance. He doesn't need a show of power like an earthly king. He is just the king of kings. Why do we need to hear that this morning? Why do we need to read about this king? Why do we need to sing about him so readily, so often, with so much emphasis on his kingship like we've done this morning? Well, it's because by nature we don't want Jesus to be king over our lives. By nature. We would rather live this life our own way, deserving the judgment that Jesus warns us of in verse 26. We would rather that than accept Jesus as king and do all we can to follow him. Our sin, that attitude against God means we are naturally at war with Jesus. But even though we don't want him, we need to realize that we need him. We need a savior. We need a king who will bring salvation and bring us peace with God. And this passage shows us what he's like as a king. It challenges us to submit to him as king and to marvel at him as king. And in doing so, we need to accept his invitation to trust him and welcome him. So our first point this morning is simply this. Jesus is the king 
who is absolute and humble. Jesus is the king who is absolute and humble. So in verse 28, we read that after finishing teaching, he goes on to Jerusalem. And he gets to Bethphage and Bethany, villages on the east of Jerusalem. And he calls two of his disciples and says in verse 30, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, say the Lord needs it. Now imagine if I was sat in Costa in the valley with a few friends, and I turned to them and said, head down to the local garage, there'll be a Ford Fiesta there. If anyone asks you why are you driving this away, uh, tell them Phil needs it. be ridiculous, wouldn't it? And yet, it's not ridiculous when Jesus does it. And that's because by this point, the disciples knew that he speaks with complete authority. As we read the Gospels, it's clear that Jesus sees behind the scenes. He's omniscient. He knows people's thoughts before they say anything. He's all-knowing. He knows who's going to betray him before it happens. He knows everything. He's got perfect knowledge. And so the events happen exactly as he said they would. Look at verse 32. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. It's phenomenal, isn't it? But the miracle has a teaching point. Jesus wants his disciples to see that this triumphal entry was planned and controlled by God. He wanted his disciples to see that he had, that he had predicted the events about that donkey. He predicted the place and the words And it had all happened as he had said. But also that, in doing these things, an even older prophecy that was predicted hundreds of years before in God's word would also be fulfilled exactly as God had said. 500 years earlier. 500 years earlier. Zechariah had prophesied about this event. He said that the Messiah would come riding on the foal of a donkey. In Zechariah 9 verse 9, let me read it to you. Rejoice greatly, daughter daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. So exactly as prophesied, Jesus rides the donkey and is welcomed into Jerusalem as a king and the people worship him. Look at verse 36 with me. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. He's addressed in verse 38 as the king who comes in the name of the Lord, just as Zechariah had foretold, your king comes to you. 
And can you see that, that total authority that Jesus has? From this big picture, prophesied 500 years previously, to the detail of Jesus directing his disciples to get the donkey. He's, control of his, he's in control of his coming to Jerusalem. And here is, in, here is the important point. It tells us that he is also, therefore, in control of all the events that happen subsequently even to the point of the nails being driven into his hands. And it's a massive contrast, isn't it? And it sums up Jesus as king. In contrast to earthly rulers who try to do big entrances to prove they can do big jobs, Jesus rides into Jerusalem humbly on a donkey with all power, and all authority. There's no challenger tank that broke down, by the way. There's no war plane that was meant to underline the end of the Iraq war and didn't. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the anointed one, the son of David, the long-awaited ruler of Israel, the fulfillment of all God's promises. And even though this is the most unimpressive entrance by a king... He's directing all events with all authority. And it's an authority that doesn't need an impressive ride to make it look good. Napoleon um, Bonaparte, while he was exiled on the island of St. Helena, he said this about Jesus, and it underlines this, this authority. He said this, I marvel that whereas the ambitious dreams of myself, Caesar, And Alexander the Great should have vanished into thin air. A Judean peasant, Jesus, should be able to stretch his hands across the centuries and control the destinies of men and nations. Luke wants us to read this for that very point. He wants us to see that same thing for ourselves, that Jesus' total authority and total humility challenges us here today because his kingship endures. He wants us to see this king who doesn't need an impressive ride to impress upon us his authority. He wants us to see that Jesus is king Because he's king. Because he's king. And he wants us to lay down our pride and all our attitude towards him at his feet. Why? Because our problem is that we are naturally suspicious about his lordship. We're naturally proud because we want control of our own destinies. Yes, we'll say the right thing, act in the right way, think the right things, but the truth is as long as his kingship doesn't really clash with mine, then that's okay. But the minute it does, then I have a problem with that. I don't want to hear his demands on my time and my energy. I don't really want his kingship, but Luke wants us to see how much of a king he is. Luke wants us to bow to his will. Luke wants us to enter into the fullness of all that his kingship represents. And we only need to look at ourselves in the mirror to see what Jesus' kingship is challenging us about. 
It might be idols that no one else knows about. The idol of status in the office, the idol of, 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 of bad use of time, of internet porn, of irresponsible lifestyle choices. Just keeping Jesus at arm's length when we're at work or school. Getting into the partying scene or, or even just secretly, secretly being smug that none of these things apply to me. Those idols show that I often want to do Jesus' kingdom on my terms. And they show that I desperately need to bend my will to his will. To surrender to his kingship. To give him my life. This Jesus comes riding on a donkey and he challenges us, doesn't he? His humility, his naturalness in authority challenges us and asks us this morning, what do we not want him to be king over? It's totally right to worship him. It's totally right to love him. And to give him all that we don't want to give him. To surrender to his kingship. But there's also a surprising thing about Jesus' authority. Because as well as his kingship being absolute. So there is a surprising thing about Jesus' authority. Because as well as his kingship being absolute, it's also humble. He's got this power, he's got this authority, he's got humility. And so his majesty is personal. He's mighty and yet he's gentle, he's perfect and he gives his life for those who are so imperfect that we might know God and be forgiven. There it is. Jesus is deliberately unimpressive here. And deliberately humble because rather than wanting to put himself above everyone else as master, he comes as servant. As the ancient title says, he is a servant king. And therefore, because he is the humble king of kings, his attitude challenges our pride. We're challenged to ask, if he is so lowly, why am I so proud? Why do I feel threatened by him? Why am I still so proud as to want to keep control of my life? Why am I still so proud as not to fall in love with him wholeheartedly? Not to feel his gentle authority over me. Not to want to follow him closely. Jesus' humility here challenges our pride, invites us to know him. But as well as being the king of authority and humility, Jesus is also, and this is the second point, and my last two points are quite a lot shorter. The king, Jesus is the king who weeps over those who reject him. In the midst of this humbling holy scene, Jesus is surrounded by the worship of those who welcomed his kingship. And then the Pharisees come in. Look at verse 39 with me. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. So these guys were saying, It's not right for this kind of worship to be given to a mere man. And how does Jesus reply? He says, I tell you, if these guys were silent, the very stones would cry out. 
It's kind of an exaggeration, but the point is this. What Jesus is saying is this is the right occasion to worship. It is the right thing to do as God's king comes into God's city. And if these people didn't say anything, it would be so wrong not to say something, then even creation would just cry out and pick up that voice and proclaim the king of kings and lord of lords. It's right, says Jesus. But then come verse verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring your peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. He's talking about the rulers in Jerusalem. He's talking about the nation of Israel, represented by those rulers who have just rejected him out of hand because he's not the Messiah they want or expected or desired. He came and he was hidden from their eyes. And Jesus continues in verse 43, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. They're sobering verses. They speak of a people whose hearts were so hardened to Jesus that they refused to accept what they were witnessing. And because they rejected Jesus as their king, Jesus here prophesies that God would bring judgment on them because their hearts were hard. And that judgment came true. In AD 70, the Romans did exactly what Jesus said they would do. They built a siege ramp against the city of Jerusalem and they destroyed the people within it and the city itself was as destroyed as they could manage. So why does Jesus weep if he knew that this was coming? Coming because his enemies rejected him? Well, Jesus wept because although the judgment that was coming on these people who rejected him was a right judgment... Jesus still loved them. It's a bit like that moment when, you're, when your child does something wrong and you discipline them. And as you take them aside and discipline them, there's still pain in your heart because you love your child so much. That's what's going on here. It's a mysterious insight into the heart of God that he will bring judgment on those who reject him. That is right and that is fair. He will punish all who reject his kingship over him. And yet, this is also true of our God, that he loves them. And he weeps at that punishment coming upon them. And for us today, we've got to see that Jesus' judgment is a personal judgment that he will look at our hearts and our attitudes towards him and he will work out whether or not we have truly called him king. And he will weep if we don't because our rejection of him will end in an eternity in hell. And that eternity in hell will be consistent with his kingship because it will be right and fair and a just punishment for rejecting him. 
And if that's you this morning, if you're still rejecting Jesus as the right king over our lives, then he invites us to repent. Repent means turning away from our attitude against Jesus. It means asking him to save us from that attitude and asking him to be king. Will we do that today? In whatever way we need to, let's repent and invite him to be our king. The scene ends in this chapter with Jesus as king over God's house. It's, it's, um, it's an amazing picture, and it's our, our third point uh, this morning. The king who rules over God's house. Look at verse 45 with me. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus' anger at these sellers was a right anger. You see, in Mark's gospel, we're told that those temple courts where the moneylenders had set up camp was the place where the Gentiles, that means non-Jew, was meant to worship God. Their, their occupation of that non-Jewish temple court, the Gentile court, as it was called, meant that the Gentiles couldn't worship God there. So, so the temple, the, 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 the place where all men were meant to worship God together, both Jew and Gentile, well, it had become a place of exploitation, a place of exclusivity. By setting up shop in the courts of the Gentiles, by giving the Gentiles no place to worship God, the message to them was that God was not interested in a relationship with them. And that is why Jesus was angry. The house of prayer was robbing Gentiles of a relationship with God. So as God's king, who is master of God's house, he set about overturning that injustice so that prayer would be offered up by all people, even the Gentiles. But as God's king, he also taught them, look at verse 47 with me, every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they, yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his word. It's a sublime picture, isn't it? The king has come riding in humility and total absolute control on a donkey. He has re-established worship in God's house and there he sets up his court. The king on the throne in God's house over God's people and he is untouchable. Sorry, I'm excited. Utterly untouchable. His opponents try and catch him out time and time again. He's examined and scrutinized and opposed and they can't touch him. The king on his throne in God's house. There is Jesus in his total sublime authority and we love him. Day after day he's up for scrutiny and he's untouchable. And he is our Jesus, isn't he? And that's what his kingship is like. I've said it already. Margaret Thatcher's challenger tank broke down and it was such an embarrassment for her. The Iraq war carried on and on and on and George W. Bush was even more embarrassed. 
earthly kingship can't match Jesus' authority. And he invites us, oh, he invites us to lay down everything to follow him. Napoleon knew what love for Jesus was. We don't know exactly where he was spiritually, but he said these words as well about Jesus. Jesus Christ makes a demand which is beyond all others difficult to satisfy. He asks for the human heart. He will have it entirely for himself. He demands it unconditionally in defiance of time and space. The soul of a man with all its powers and faculties. And we must submit to the empire of Christ. All who sincerely believe in him experience that remarkable, supernatural love towards him. This love is unaccountable. History could not invent it as a concept. Time, the great destroyer, is powerless to extinguish it. Time can neither exhaust this love's strength nor put a limit to its range. That is the love that King Jesus brings into our lives and our hearts. And he does it today just like he did it 2,000 years ago on that first Palm Sunday. And this morning, will we see Jesus? Will we see him, the king who rides on a donkey, with power, with authority, to be king over our lives? Will we welcome him, the king who accepts the worship of his people and who weeps over those who won't? Will we welcome him, the king who is zealous for justice, for people to worship God rightly? Will we trust him and his inscrutable, trustworthy, faultless kingship? Will we love him? Immerse ourselves in that love. Put to death that desire to want to reign our own lives our own way and follow him. I don't know about yourself, but as I looked at him riding into Jerusalem on the donkey and taking up his rightful place as God's king over God's house, ruling God's people, God's way, for God's glory, I was challenged to the core because I don't want that. And perhaps like me, This morning, you can say the same thing, but in seeing this Jesus, suddenly I do. I want him to be king over my life, his way, for his glory. Let's spend a time, just a couple of minutes, talking to him. Let's confess to him where our hearts are the things we still want to own for ourselves. And let's give them to him, our inscrutable, faultless king over God's house. Let's bow our heads.